Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. This is also episode 9.0 of my Black Sabbath series, Arc Sabbath. And it's been a long time since the last episode. I realised this, I took a bit of a break from it in order to focus on some other things, which took longer than I expected, which is fine. But now we're back. Back to finish the arc, back to finish the remaining years of Black Sabbath, which... Will be covered off in the next two episodes, and that is the period between where we left off. Rob Halford, what the hell, is singing for Black Sabbath Sabbath at the Costa Mesa shows in 1992 because Ronnie James Dio took his ball and went home, to paraphrase the wrestling commentator Jim Ross. And what a bizarre situation that was. I left the last episode end with a clip of Rob Halford singing Heaven and Hell with Black Sabbath, which was very strange carry on all together and in this episode you'll be hearing from series regulars alejandra you'll be hearing from philip you'll be hearing from rye you'll be hearing from joe sigler and for the first time ever on the sabbath arc you'll be hearing from mick wall so i'm delighted to say that i interviewed mick wall solely about black sabbath recently and i have several of his comments that i'll be using in this episode and the next episode Um, and it's great to get input from somebody whose books i referenced heavily throughout this podcast or this series let's say um, and somebody who was there at the time who who lived through it who was a press representative for the band and i'm glad he cleared up what pr stood for because i was always confused when he he referenced being a pr and in my mind pr stood for public relations so i was like you were a public relations what what, is the, what does the PR stand for when you're using it like that? But he uh, cleared that up when I spoke to him. It's a press representative, so that was good to learn. But um, Mick was a press representative for Black Sabbath. He was, uh, as he puts it, kind of in with Sharon Osbourne for a while there as well. Um, but he did lots of PR work for Dio. He, he was heavily involved. As, as, we, as you know, he also wrote um, or finished or, or completed... Uh, Ronnie James Dio's autobiography as well recently and he wrote to in my mind the best book that's ever been written on Black Sabbath uh, Symptom of the Universe so it was great to have him involved but before we get to the interview segments uh, people's comments I'm just going to look back on the album that we just covered off which is of course Dehumanizer the 1992 album which reunited the 1981 Mob Rules lineup of Black Sabbath of Tony Iommi, Ronnie James, Dio, Geezer Butler, and Vinnie Appice. And in my mind, it's one of the best albums Black Sabbath have ever released. I would nearly put it up in the top three if you if you were holding a gun to my head in a in a very realistic situation where you would be doing that. Um, I would uh, I'd say Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, uh, Mob Rules, and maybe Dehumanizer on my on my top three Sabbath albums. And the songs on it are just so heavy and so visceral and. They are very much a departure, as many people discussed in the last episode, for Ronnie James Dio. Lyrics-wise, they're very much a departure from what we had the last time Ronnie was singing with the same lineup, and and in fairness, what he was singing himself um, in the 1980s, uh, on the likes of uh, Dream Evil and uh, The Last in Line um, and all that type of stuff. So I just wanted to have a, a quick look at some of those songs and pick some of my favourites, as is my custom here on uh, Feckin' Sabbath, whatever. <laughs> Whatever we're calling it, it's Ark Sabbath, Jesus. It's been too long. 
One of the best songs on the album, I think, is the song Computer God, which got mentioned a few times in, in the last episode. And um, it's it's the angry, kind of growly, gravelly Ronnie James Dio voice that we hadn't really heard too much up until this point. That really sells me on this song. I remember buying the CD myself when I was a young fellow, going into Terror Records, picking it up. It was nine ninety nine. I remember that very specifically. And bringing it home, and the cover art was uh, really appealing to me. That, um, frankly, something that looked like a Terminator sucking the life out of a, a heavy metal fan, uh, dehumanizing him in the process, you might say. But Computer God, as, as we have discussed in, on the previous episodes, is about basically computers becoming sentient, maybe artificial superintelligence or something like that. Or it could be about us worshipping computers as gods and giving them too much power. And here's a little clip from Computer God, which opens dehumanizing. Excellent stuff there, and um, you can't mention highlights from this album, in my mind anyway, without talking about the song After All the Dead in brackets. This song is reminiscent of Early Sabbath, I think, and it it brings to mind the riffs from albums like uh, Paranoid and Master of Reality, but you've got Ronnie James Dio here, and he's pissed off, and he's talking about the afterlife. Um, yeah, let's just have a listen to this. stuff there and the last track i wanted to play a clip from is the song too late i think alejandra mentioned this as one of her favorites it's a uh, the closest thing we get to a ballad well i think it is a ballad actually on dehumanizer and uh, some beautiful lyrics from dio he kind of changes up his vocal approach here it's a, it's a cleaner vocal and it's a really almost like a haunting kind of melody in this song uh, and i think it's it's a great example of the diverse range of vocal approaches Ronnie James Dio had at his disposal in 1992. He could sing the gravelly angry stuff, he could sing the fast kind of less gravelly but intense stuff like Die Young and he could also sing a a beautiful ballad like Too Late. So here's a bit of Too Late. Too late, no one hears you. 
All right, so that was the ballad Too Late from Dehumanizer, the last clip I'm going to play from that excellent album. If you haven't listened to it before, I highly recommend you do so. It's available on all the streaming platforms, unlike some of those other 90s and 80s Black Sabbath albums from around the same era. A couple of really good lines in that lyrics. Uh, one phrase that I adopted into my vocabulary and I use quite often. Uh, Promises made in the night. I love that. And I think I actually said it on an earlier episode of Ark Sabbath when I was referencing the fact that I agreed with Jonathan for him to appear on Ark Sabbath while we were drunk on a Zoom call. And then I forgot about it the next day. But when Dio says you have to pay for promises made in the night, it always makes me think of things you agree to when you're drunk that you have to actually follow through with when you're sober. Not that that was a bad thing following through with Jonathan and getting him on the podcast, but in some cases when it's like, let's start a band, let's write a screenplay, let's um, <laughs> The next day you're like, oh my God, what the fuck was I shiting on about? And you have to you pay for those promises made in the night. So thanks Dio for that lyric because I love it and I use it to this day. Uh, another thing that I think was extremely prophetic, um, maybe an example of foreshadowing, accidental foreshadowing, was when Dio says at the end of that clip that I played there, do you feel the touch of evil? It's too late. Dio actually referencing his successor in Black Sabbath, albeit temporarily, of course, Rob Halford, who used the phrase Touch of Evil as one of the song titles for Painkiller, the album that was out at the time when Rob Halford replaced Ronnie James Dio in Black Sabbath. And Dio saying, do you feel the touch of evil? It's too late. And it was too late, of course, for Dio at that time, because Rob Halford, singer of the song Touch of Evil, replaced him in Black Sabbath. I just thought that was fucking brilliant. And it just occurred to me now. So that's why I sound very excited about that. Um, I love when you notice those things that were obviously accidental, but turned out to be kind of uh, predicting the future. I assume people who actually believe in any of that stuff might read deeper into that and think that Dio was a, a prophet. Um, I just think it's a nice happy coincidence, but it's it's an interesting point for me. So yes, too late for Dio. The writing was on the wall and Dio had seen that writing. To give a bit of context, I'm going to read a, an interview from Martin Popoff's book, Born Again, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s. Here's Ronnie James Dio talking about the Dehumanizer album. From my perspective, it was really something that never got finished, said Ronnie upon the release of Dehumanizer, looking back on the original Dio era's link to the present situation. We were doing so well at the time, then suddenly, within a relatively short period of time, it all flew apart. Again, I thought it was a chapter unfinished, so having done my own thing with Dio for this length of time, and having changed personnel for the last Dio project, I thought it was a good time to start finishing that chapter, so when Geezer came along with the opportunity and kind of felt me out, I told him that I'd also been thinking about it and that it would be nice to do. From that, he called Tony, and things just fell into place from there. I really don't think that anything was lost, continues Ronnie. I feel that within that 10-year period that everything had gotten better. Geezer, who's always been a great player, had gotten incredibly better and more involved, which was an unexpected gain from my perspective. Tony has become a better player with age as well. He's like a fine wine. I think I approached it differently too. I didn't want to be Ronnie Dio on this record. I think that this album was more spat out than it was melodically caressed. Vinny has gotten better in the 10 years too. If anything, the 10 years gone by have made us all better and more professional. If there was anything lost, it was 10 years of our youth, not being able to go from the Mob Rules album and grow together. That was lost. But maybe in retrospect, it was the right way to do it, just to come back cold and bang, here we are again. That may turn out to be more important than to have grown together. And we may have wanted to make the same album five or six more times, but by having a 10-year hiatus from each other, we went in with no preconceived notions about what we had to do. We knew that our career of 10 years ago was something that we didn't want to repeat. In reality, I think we were better off to have had the 10 years apart. Older? Wiser? Well, older we certainly were. Chuckles Dio. 
more mature we certainly are. Wiser? I guess we have to be. Anyone who survives 10 years in this business has to gain that. So yeah, we're wiser, but that doesn't mean that we're going to use that wisdom. What's happened in the positive for us is that we've matured to the point where we know we won't allow ourselves to self-destruct, which could be very easy. Egos could batter each other to death. We can blow up again. I think now we realise that in order to keep the thing together, you don't take steps sideways and that you close your mouth before you say something. We had to do a bit of eggshell walking in the project and probably we'll always have to. It's not the way it was 10 years ago when they were Black Sabbath and heading on the downside and I was coming up from Rainbow, which certainly wasn't Black Sabbath at the time. Finney and I were like the poor cousins then and in some way we were treated like that too. Well, now we've come from our career over the past 10 years that has been more successful than theirs, so we're not coming back as the poor relatives. We could have thrown our shoulders around and bruised and battered everybody. We didn't need to do this, but we wanted to do it. So like I said, there was a lot of eggshell walking done, but now we're more equal than before. I think that's the greatest change of all. So interesting to hear Ronnie's thoughts during the time period of Dehumanizer and talking about how the band might self-destruct, but he thought, you know, that they'd grown and matured and that wouldn't happen this time. And of course, we know it did happen. And um, let's hear from Mick Wall about those Costa Mesa shows. The reason Ronnie didn't do the Costa Mesa show was because Ronnie was sick of the bullshit and the lying and the backstabbing. Giza, Tony, knew all about the Costa Mesa show because they've been having their little drinks and dinners and secret meetings with Sharon, who was offering them at least 10 times what Dio could have offered them. And um, at their hearts, the Aussie stuff is the real stuff. And that's where the money is. And um, Sharon knew, oh, Ronnie Dio would never in a fucking million years do that show. And if he did, win-win. I mean, what a fucking fool, you know. So Ronnie predictably says, shove it up your ass. He's being railroaded. He wasn't in, he wasn't in the conversation. It was fate complete. And he said, well, fuck you. And they went, okay, we'll get Rob Halford to do it. It doesn't really fucking matter. Who does it? We could get Adam fucking Ant to do it. We're, we're back with Ozzy by the end of the show, my friend, you know? Oh, trust me, my friend. They, they, these are not, these. I think people think they're the Beatles. They're all friends living in the same house, you know? Ozzy and Iomi hated each other, and Ozzy won because of Sharon. Now, you might be familiar with Mick Wall already. Perhaps you've read his autobiographical book, Get Your Rocks Off, or the semi-autobiographical book, Paranoid, My Black Days with Sabbath and Other Horror Stories. Or maybe you listened to some of his previous podcasts, Get Your Rocks Off and Dead Rock Stars. Or maybe you're listening to his current podcast, simply called Mick Wall, which launched recently. Maybe you've even subscribed to his recently launched Patreon page. And if not, I highly recommend it. There are a lot of archival articles and interviews published in titles like Kerrang! and Classic Rock Magazine. Uh, he recently published a full transcript of an interview with Fish from Marillion. And that was a really interesting read because the finished piece only ended up at 3,000 words, but the actual interview was 13,000. So, yes, I recommend you have a look at Mick Wall's Patreon and his podcast and his books. And of course, his book, Symptom of the Universe, his Black Sabbath biography, which I consider to be the definitive Black Sabbath biography. And I've referenced it many times on this podcast series, of course. But if you don't know the story or if you need a little refresher course, here is Mick Wall talking about his days with Black Sabbath, how he got involved with the band and other opinions on the band throughout the years, as told to me last week in a very candid and opinionated interview. And that little nugget about Sharon Osbourne, don't worry, we certainly do revisit it later. 
I was about 12 when I heard the single Paranoid at a school disco and uh, I'd never heard anything like it. It didn't really sound like music. It was, it was like the theme tune to Doctor Who or something. It was just this strange sound, you know. I used to have some of their albums. And then by early, early 1980, I'm 21, working at Heavy Publicity. And they'd done the publicity for Black Sabbath, excuse me, in the UK in the Aussie years. And um, so now they'd sacked Ozzy, but that big whole saga, and Dio comes in. They've done the album with Martin Birch, who would go on to, uh, I think, literally almost straight after Sabbath, do the first, did he do the first Maiden album? It was probably the second, I don't know, but anyway. So, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I went out to Paris in February, and that's where I first met the Dio lineup. Um, and first met Black Sabbath. Um, yeah, I forgot your question. What was it? <laughs> My question was to Mick, what do you do as a member of a publicity firm? What is a press representative's job? Um, I, I can't speak for what it's like these days, but back then and for many years to come, while, while bands were still selling records and making a shit ton of money, and in particular when the music press still mattered, which it, it really doesn't anymore, the whole idea was was that anybody that worked for a band, whatever your job, uh, it was like going to war. You know, if you had that uniform, uh, you would come to the assistant assistance of your comrade if you were needed. But my job, publicity in those days, it was very straightforward. But you have to remember a world where there's literally three TV channels, uh, national TV. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, maybe even probably minus two or something. But, you know, we had three. And uh, for a while, and uh, uh, and one national radio station, music station, which was Radio One, and TV and radio uh, simply didn't play Black Sabbath or you know Deep Purple. Or, I mean, they would play Thin Lizzy, who did have some great singles, uh, uh, but by and large, forget it, you know. But concurrent to that, and partly, you know, be- because of that, uh, there were four music paper weeklies in the UK, Sounds, Enemy, Melody Maker and Record Mirror. And because no, in the case of, say, Sabbath, no one realistically expected Neon Nights to be played on Radio 1 as a hot new single of the week, you know. Um, At the same time, by 1980, any evening music shows, we were into skinny ties and... Uh, getting your hair cut and oh my god you're not wearing flares are you you know and so the chances of getting sabbath on the radio even in the evenings would be restricted to you know the specialist shows you know alan fluff freeman was the big one on radio one on a saturday afternoon and then when he went to capital radio tommy vance came in tommy had been presenting reggae music shows for radio london and he came in and his Friday rock show and so on and so forth. So the only way you could get major exposure exposure for a group like Sabbath was through the music press. Mm-hmm. So you would hire a, a press agent, a publicity agent, a press representative, a PR. And so the, the, the job was twofold. Um, number one, you've got to get them in the music press. Not just here's a little story that we've got a record coming out. Get them on the cover of the magazine. Get news stories, letting them know it was coming. Get news stories, printing the details. You know, other next issue tour dates, next issue front cover interview, 
one after that, live reviews, and then the merry-go-round starts again, get another feature, you know, just keep, keep, keep going. And in Britain, um, funnily enough, the sort of the, one of the really important things to do as a PR in those days was get them into the regional papers because, because of punk, NME weren't going to touch Sabbath with a barge drop. They weren't even going to do a piece and say they were shit. You know, they didn't matter. Uh, Melody Maker, yes, but they would do Sabbath, Zeppelin, Queen, you know, the really, the big beasts. Uh, they weren't going to do Iron Maiden or Def Leppard or anything. Sound, same thing, Black Sabbath, that's a cover. Um, we got, I got them on the cover of Record Mirror, which was astonishing because that was a pop magazine. Um, but somehow we fucking did it. I don't know how. Um, and uh, so your job is to literally just get, get them in. You're a press agent. You get them in the press. And uh, you do that through a combo. It's not enough just to go, oh, here's a new record. And then they go, oh, shit, isn't it? Oh, the guy said it was shit. Sorry, fellas. You know, you have to persuade the guy that it's not shit uh, and that it would be in his interests to understand just how not shit it is. And that would be, uh, you know, well, let's go and see the band in New York. Oh, New York. Oh, yeah, but you don't like the album, do you? Oh, no, no, no. I've been playing it again recently. It's one of the, it's a grower. I then asked Mick about his dealings with Don Arden. And if Arden was still on the scene, i.e. the Sabbath scene, after he famously declared that you can't have a midget fronting Black Sabbath and stopped representing the band when Ronnie James Dio got on board. Here's what Mick said. No, no, no. He was very much on the scene, but he really thought they had no chance whatsoever without Ozzy. And he had Ozzy. Um, weirdly enough, cut to just over 20 years later, and I ghosted Don's memoirs. And I got to spend a lot of time with him where he would tell me all about midgets and gangsters. And he was fantastic. I mean, you know, I, you know, I love a story. He was amazing. But back in the day, in Heaven and Hell, they so Sabbath were taken over for management by a guy called Sandy Perlman, who also managed Blue Oyster Cult, but was like, um, they were his band. You know, he produced their records, he co-wrote material, and, uh, and that's why the Heaven and Hell tour, once it kicked off in America in 1980, it was the Black and Blue tour. It was Black Sabbath and Blue Oyster Cult. And in certain places, blue, most places, Blue Oyster Cult, it was a co-headline, but Blue Oyster Cult would come on first and then Sabbath, and then certain shows, Sabbath would come on first. They would have an equal amount of stage time, but of course, Perception is always the last band on is the headliner. Um, yes, yeah, so, and Sandy was completely different to Don. He was into music. Yeah, quite a, quite a, quite a chasm there between the two interests, yeah. I clarified to Mick that I meant, was Don Arden still in any way involved with Black Sabbath, even though he technically wasn't the manager? Some people have speculated that the war between Ozzy Osbourne, who Don went on to manage, and Black Sabbath was kind of a fabrication, something created in order to stir up interest between the two camps. Was there any communication between the two camps at the time? No, no. I mean, as I say, I did get to know Don as the years went by. Um... No, no, no. In fact, the, the opposite, the two camps were really, they didn't cross. There was no Venn diagram. 
you know, or there was, but not by now. It was like magnets that you couldn't push together. And you were either in one camp or the other. This wasn't made explicit to me at all. Um, it was only, it only became apparent as time went on because um, I met them in Paris in February 1980. Uh, I think the album came out in like May, April, May. And the European tour started in Germany in April, got to the UK in, I'm going to say, May, June. They did like five nights at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And I, I did all of that. Um, and then come October that year, the, the American tour had started in July, August, something like that. And by the early October, they were doing Madison Square Garden in New York. And by that time, uh, another long story, which I won't tell, but heavy publicity had gone. I was actually washing dishes for £10 a night in a, in a posh burger joint. And I, and I got a phone. No, you have to have no mobiles. It's all pay phones and someone's phone. There's a phone call for you. I'm in the kitchen, literally up to my shoulders in suds, uh, sucking on white bottles of white wine. And um, I went upstairs to the phone, and it was uh, their tour manager, Paul Clark, calling from wherever they were in America. Will you come to fucking New York? Bring that cunt Mikowski with you. Get fucking some wanker from Melanie I'm like, uh, when? Next week. Oh, fuck me. Um, I can't remember the actuality, but uh, I had no money and I was told, don't worry, because the minute you get into New York, Paul will give you um, a month's whatever Sabbath paid the company every month, they were going to give that to me in cash. And um, and I literally, Pete Mikowski, who died last week, I was 22, he was 24, and uh, I took him with me. And we met up with, uh, he was doing a cover for Sounds magazine, and we met up in New York with a guy called Steve Gett, who was also from England, but was now living in New York. And he was doing a big piece for Melody Maker. And I um, remember we got to the hotel. The, we, Sabbath was staying at the Waldorf Astoria, and uh, which is like the New York equivalent of the Savoy or the Dorchester or something. The Georges Sank. And, um, and a limo picked us up. I had a five-pound note in my pocket. And when we got there, I, ne I didn't have a card or nothing. And, uh, and literally the tour manager called me up to, it was a Friday, called me up to his suite. And I went up there and long story short, he gave me the month's money in cash in an envelope. And I think it was about uh, 500 quid or something. But the dollar rate in those days was something like, it was literally like $2.6 per pound. <clears throat> so I ended up with um, whatever that fucking was. Uh, um, we were booked into the hotel for two nights. They did Madison Square the following night. And then uh, me and Pete uh, decided to stay on for a couple of weeks. By this point, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I ended up dishwashing was Sabbath had put me off working in the music business. I've been working with Lizzie and Dire Straits and Journey and The Damned and various people. And it was all a laugh, you know, Lemmy and Hawkman and girls' school, it was all a laugh. 
And then Sabbath, they were just the most miserable motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. All right, so just a bit of background on Mick Wall's involvement with Black Sabbath over the years. And don't worry, there's plenty more to come. And he has plenty of opinions on the latter period of their career, too. And on that topic, let's get back to the matter at hand. We're talking about Tony Martin in Black Sabbath. We've just covered the albums Headless Cross and tear then we moved on to the reunion with ronnie james dio for dehumanizer but at this stage of their career they're about to go back to tony martin and are about to record the albums cross purposes and forbidden i asked mick his opinions on tony martin in general tony martin definitely brought some cred back though because he had a really good voice he wasn't just some wanker from another band looking for a payday and the fact that he was also from the midlands all these little things ticked little margins of credibility came back and they and they made some good records certainly some good tracks but it was tough i mean he he was good but by the time you've got cozy powell on the drums and neil murray on bass and i'm going to say don airy on keyboards because he must have been there somewhere along the line probably elton john in the wings you know um it just it just you know it just didn't have it it just didn't have it it wasn't happening I asked Mick if he thought Tony Martin found it difficult to find his place in Black Sabbath and referenced Mick's own comments from his book Symptom of the Universe where he talks about a video from the Headless Cross era where Tony Iommi hugs the limelight from the new singer. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So did Glenn Hughes. So did uh, Ray Gillen and anybody else that had a go other than Dio. Um, But you have to remember back in the... When Sabbath first became stars in... Uh, 1970, uh, right up till the very end with uh, with Ozzy, if you went to see them live, Iomi always stood in the middle. You know, like, as you're looking at me now, drums back here, bassist here, guitarist here, singer in the middle. Sabbath were drummer, geezer, Tony, and over here, Ozzy. Always Tony's band always i mean they used to call him darth vader you know behind his back and it really suited him at the time he's more of a pussycat now but not back then and uh so tony was always the star of the show but by the time you get the cat you're in a situation where the only reason they're still being given money to make records or tour is because tony iomi's in the band because there are no other black sabbath members in the band uh, it's it's really uh, stretching it to still call it Black Sabbath, but you've got Iomi. It's like, you know, when Guns N' Roses had Axel and just a load of other fucking people that you'd never heard of, you know. This is Iomi with a load of other people that you'd heard really a lot about already, apart from the cat. So, you know, you bet your ass he was in the videos. You bet your ass he was on the covers and that. Because... He was the moneymaker. You know, if they put Tony front and centre, you may as well call the band, band something different because no one would know who the fuck he is or what's going on. You know, you, you had two seconds to get someone's attention. Uh, put That's why I am is there. So you at least know it's Black Sabbath. Um, God bless Tony Martin. I think he's got a great voice and uh, he wrote some good stuff and gave it his all, a genuine, genuine person. But it means nothing in the music business, particularly America. Uh, and in America, they've never even heard of England. You know, no one gives a fuck what anybody thinks outside of America. And Aussie's never been that big in Britain and Europe anyway. It's always been America and Japan and the whole kind of Pacific Rim. 
Um, yeah. All right, so we'll have plenty more from Mick Wall later on in the story. But let's get back on track. So, when Sabbath went to record Dehumanizer, Ronnie James Dio was brought back into the fold, along with Geezer Butler and Vinnie Appice. The recording sessions progressed, and then Dio decided to leave. After which point, they brought in Tony Martin again, to finish the recording of the Dehumanizer album. Tony Martin laid down his vocals for Dehumanizer, but after a certain point, Ronnie James Dio decided he wanted to return. They got rid of Tony Martin at that point, and continued to record the album with Dio, which they released. They toured with Dio and Vinnie Appice, and that culminated in the famed Costa Mesa shows, which Mick has already given his opinion on earlier in the episode, and others did in the previous episode of Eric Sabbath. Ronnie James Dio quits, says he doesn't want to support Ozzy Osbourne. At the end of that Costa Mesa show, the original lineup of Black Sabbath is reunited on what is allegedly Ozzy Osbourne's final show as a touring musician on his No More Tours tour. The band then, in secret meetings, tries to get the original lineup of Black Sabbath to reunite. Those talks go nowhere. Simultaneously, Tony Iommi goes back to Tony Martin and asks him to rejoin Black Sabbath with a different lineup other than the original lineup in order to record the album that would become Cross Purposes. So, if you're Tony Martin, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, and now you're in again. I asked Alejandra, who you'll be familiar with if you've been listening to previous episodes of Ark Sabbath, how she would feel if she were Tony Martin, constantly at the impish whim of Tony Iommi. Yeah, I would have felt a little offended, to be honest. Yes, that they would just call me whenever <laughs> one of the other singers that maybe they regarded as as better or as you know more appealing, maybe even to to fans. Because um, I mean, again, you know, you have to think that this is also a business and Naomi was probably thinking that, you know, you have Ozzy in the band and you're going to have crowds just flocking to, to your concerts or, or even Dio who by then already had his own following. And uh, I don't think Martin had that power to, to draw people in. I mean, they would have come to see Black Sabbath, of course, but, um, but they wouldn't have come to see Tony Martin. <laughs> I don't know if he would have felt like, um, Oh, uh, you know they're they're calling me again because they have no one else. <laughs> like, like he was the the spare uh, the spare singer. You know, as as we as, as I said before, like they knew that he would he was always there and always ready to get back uh, in the band whenever whenever needed. And and he would always say yes. Uh, you know that that was another thing. He would always uh, go back again because. This was probably a, a great opportunity for him. So you'll remember Philip Trummer from previous episodes. Of course you do. Well, he's here again to talk with us on the Tony Martin issue and about the Cross Purposes and Forbidden Albums, which we will get to. But firstly, I asked him the same question as I asked Alejandra. How did you think Tony Martin would have felt with this constantly toing and froing in between Sabbath whenever they needed a new singer? Just felt like a bitch being used. I mean, it's brutal. But interestingly enough, when you when you listen to some of the things uh, Tony Martin has to say about it, he's very pragmatic. You know, he doesn't really harbor that much resentment. Uh, he said, you know, I was doing my own thing at the time. He did a solo album and, you know, he kept himself busy. And when they wanted him back, he's like, all right, let's do that again. He said, you know, in rock and roll, you just kind of have to uh, get a thick skin and deal with that. And, you know, they nobody ever really knew who Tony Martin was in 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 the broader sense so nothing they did really pushed him 
more into the focus. Ozzy and, and Dio were known entities. Ian Gillen was obviously very well known. Tony Martin never really got that. He never got there. And so they probably never looked at him in the same way they did at these other guys. And that's that's kind of something that that I've sifted out of the Black Sabbath story as well, in which we can, you know, touch on a little bit later, is how people were kind of treated. I think this is the thing that Tony Ayomi did often. Like I, as I said, you know, he was obsessed with getting Ozzy back. Like the minute Ozzy would have said, I want back, he would have kicked out anybody who was in the band that that, you know would get in the way of this uh of the band getting together um so that would have would that have been dio or tony martin or uh, poor uh vinnie apice <laughs> or you know whoever was in in the band that the uh, ozzy wouldn't have uh, wanted there or, or who was an extra you know because they were not gonna have two singers for sure um so I agree. I agree completely with with Dio's decision. I think uh, Ayami made a lot of mistakes. He could have just forgotten about Ozzy. You know, it was over. It was in the past. But again, you know, it's just like sometimes there are people who just go back to their exes all the time. They just go back. They can't <laughs> let them go. And I think there there was this kind of relationship between them. I don't know. Probably Tony thought that Ozzy was the singer for Black Sabbath. That he was the best singer. And was always maybe hoping that he would go back. I think Tony Ayomi probably respected, had a lot of respect for for Dio. I think he was probably one of the of the few musicians that, well, either because Dio would actually make himself be respected, you know, he would stand up to him and and not let himself be treated like garbage. <laughs> Because he, I don't know, maybe because he knew his own worth and he knew that he could do well without, whereas maybe of the other musicians uh, were kind of afraid that if they stood up to him, they would be let go and would they ever be able to, to get into a band as important and as good as Black Sabbath? Who knows? So I completely agree with Dio's decision to to leave the band. If if uh, you know if you're not going to be treated with respect, if you if you're going to ask me to to open for the you know former singer of of the band and if you're 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 planning a, a reunion uh behind my back all right so let's get into the album cross purposes so this was recorded and completed and apparently ready to go in 1993 but at the same time iomi was brokering or trying to broker a deal between ozzy osbourne and the original black sabbath lineup to go on a full-blown reunion tour which never actually happened his bit on the side, of course, was a new Tony Martin album, and Geezer Butler even stuck around for that one. So, Cross Purposes, eventually released on the 31st of January 1994, featured Tony Martin on vocals, Tony Iommi on guitar, Geezer Butler on bass, Bobby Rondinelli on drums, and Jeff Nichols, longtime Sabbath member at this stage, on keyboards. Let us go back to our panel to discuss the album Cross Purposes. Let's pick it up with Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast. But Martin was always in the wings, even when like Dio was kind of flaking out on some gigs around that time. They were trying to bring Martin back for that last thing, and Halford was a last-minute kind of replacement because they couldn't get Martin over apparently. Well, he was on call. He's just you know he's he's kind of he's kind of under their control. At, uh, you can tell the way that the it always comes back to him, and he gets disrespected in a in a sense that way because it it always bugs me when I hear in Iomi's book, which is terrible by the way. Um, I don't think it's very well written at all, but it's definitely, at least it's his, it's what he signed off as his voice. So it's kind of, 
part of something that I need to constantly reference. But, but he says in there, like, he's like, oh yeah, Tony Martin wasn't professional at all. And that kind of, but, but there's just a bit of disrespect there as far as like his professional, cause he was professional. And I definitely, I definitely think he, 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 he wasn't the same as the other guys, as far as Iommi could kind of let it, he had to keep him on a leash a little bit more, I think just because he was kind of moldable. He's very, which is great. That's what he needed, I think, to get those albums out. And especially when you have Cozy Powell in the band, who's like a huge personality. Um, I know heading into these. So cross purposes, they had Bobby Rondinelli and Geezer came back. So it's kind of another outlier, kind of uh, not quite back into the Martin era kind of thing. And I think that that stemmed from the fallout with Dio and um, what they had lined up at that time. I think um, Bill Ward even subbed in on some cross purposes tour stuff. Uh, but it's funny. It's a, it's a weird album in that sense. I love it because Geezer's back. There's a bit of that tone and Geezer's bringing that um, same kind of dehumanizer vibe as far as I think some of the lyric stuff. Um, and yeah, I find uh, sonically, I like it. Uh, there's a couple of duds. It's not like top album for me. It's probably my, well, it's, it's about the same as Tear for me as far as in the Martin era of ones that I'd go back to. I probably like Tear a little bit more. Tear's a little more solid. But there's some cool vibes in there. Like they definitely, this is another, the snake eating its tail kind of thing. Um, you can tell that like, like virtual death is one that I'll mention because that's like House and Chains, right? And uh, it's, it's weird to hear that. Um, Tony Martin, I don't think really fits into the grunge thing. And th- that kind of carries through to Forbidden because the whole idea behind Forbidden is that it's, it's a grungy kind of album, even the, the producer that was involved, the guy from Body Count, he said that specifically. He's like, I tried to make it sound like a Nirvana record because I wanted it to be in your face like they're in a room with you and it's dry production and everybody hates that. But I don't, I mean, I find these two albums sonically are cool. Yes, Cross Purposes. Um, probably my least favorite of the whole bunch, I have to say. I find it not bad. I find the whole album without highlights, without standouts but not bad. I don't, there's n- nothing jumps at me like it does from the other albums. Um, I feel the songwriting is just kind of going through the motions and I don't like the cover art either. All right. So let's delve into some tracks from cross purposes, starting with opening track eyewitness followed by cross of thorns. Here's Alejandra discussing eyewitness. It gets better as it progresses for me. I think the vocals are a little bit odd at the start. I mean, you can't even tell this is Martin singing at the beginning, but it, it gets better afterwards. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say this is one of my of my favorite songs in, in this record. Absolutely not. I, I prefer Cross of Thorns. I mean, Cross of Thorns is is awesome. I, I love that song. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, my notes say it's, it may be the, the best track on the album. It's got an epic tinge. Uh, it's, it's a good metal ballad. Um, I like that, that one quite a bit. Yeah, again, for me, uh, Cross of Thorns is, is definitely the standout track of the record is it's just one of those songs that really lends itself really well to showcasing Martin's uh, you know vocal skills so I think he he does a really good uh, rendition of it has a great melody a great solo it's uh, it's definitely my my favorite in the record uh, another standout for me was I think back to Eden it's a really cool uh, Zeppelin riff but then a bit of a boring chorus. Cardinal Sin has this kind of cashmere vibes, don't you think? Da, 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 da. <laughs> That's all I have. 
<laughs> Kashmir, Kashmir vibes. Um, yeah, and again, I think uh, it also ties in with that, you know, with that same idea of him referencing religion and uh, and maybe being critical of it, right? Where do you go when your conscience takes over? Do you crawl to your corner and cry? And the world is watching you. Every tongue is screaming sinner. When you sin, cardinal sin, don't expect the world will treat you well. Well, actually, I read that uh, that that Tony Ayomi does this thing. He has this box of riffs. Have you ever read about this? Have you heard about the box of riffs? So, um, it would seem strange to me that he would go and 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 maybe uh, you know plagiarize uh, such a well-known song when he has a you know probably all these ideas that he could use. Uh, I don't know. Although you know, some people say that these things can happen. Uh, unconsciously, but I think it's it's so obvious in this song. I leave it up to you to decide if Iommi was dipping into Jimmy Page's box of riffs for inspiration to write cross purposes. Uh, another one that I actually put a star to was uh, Evil Eye. Uh, I think that one has really cool. Um, the the riff reminds me a little bit of Zero the Hero, and uh, it, it's got a cool solo there, and also a good pace. I asked Alejandra if she might have noticed the subtle reference to Ronnie James Dio's departure after the Dehumanizer album in the lyrics to Psychophobia. Time to kiss the rainbow! I know it! I knew it! Time to kiss the rainbow goodbye. Yeah, totally subliminal. Absolutely. It just stopped me on my tracks. I was just casually listening to it and I thought, what did he just say? Time to kiss the rainbow goodbye. Wow, wow, very telling. I think it is there for a reason, definitely. So what was I saying? Yeah, so yeah, apart from that, apart from that interesting fact, <laughs> not really interested in psychophobia. Yeah, virtual death, as I said. I don't know. I, I don't know why they keep doing this. Why do you think they keep doing this? Putting one of these uh, Aussie-like songs in each one of the records. There's at least one in each one. I don't know. I know I know also that in, in case uh, Aussie rejoined the band, he was never going to sing anything that, okay, for one, because he couldn't most of the time. Uh, uh, second, because again, probably a matter of ego, he would never um, sing anything that was, you know, sung by any other uh, singer that had been in Sabbath. So, so yeah, I wonder why they would put these songs there. I mean, it wasn't certainly in the hopes that he would be able to sing it because he was not going to sing Cross of Thorns, that's for sure. All right, so we've had Cross of Thorns and now we have Immaculate deception is this tony martin again criticizing christianity yes yeah definitely again if you if you are um if you're a catholic as i i think you are and i was raised although i'm not practicing uh anymore then yeah that definitely resonates right with uh again with with catholicism and and, and religious uh imagery so so yeah, we're immaculate deception would definitely be taken uh, in that way as a as a very very strong criticism. Uh, probably yeah, um, the hand that rocks the cradle is probably uh, one of the of the best songs here too. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Definitely, I I really like the the keyboard parts and the, and the drums. Yeah, 
Okay, so because if I'm not mistaken, that was was that the one about the the babysitter that was trying to, what did she kill the children or she, she was trying to what kidnap them? I mean, I haven't seen this film in like thirty years. Oh my god, uh, I mean it's a it's a good album. It's an okay album, but it starts to show some some sort of decline, right? By by now, it's starting to not to be as good as as the the first three again you know this one maybe having been was this done after directly after human dehumanizer was this the one yeah so yeah probably you know that that couldn't have helped either to to the morale or to the to the spirit you know again being having you know having gone back to dio and then coming back to again an, an, another different singer it, it's always a this breaking continuity and i think the same happened with the humanizer right like if they if they had done the the third dio record uh straight after uh mob rules again the humanizer is probably my least favorite of the three dio uh albums I asked Philip if he thought this was maybe the most insignificant album Black Sabbath ever made. Perhaps, perhaps. Like, like I told you, um, I was never a fan of 13, but that album's certainly significant. Um, this one could probably, you know, be forgotten. It, it's interesting enough when it came out, I think uh, it came out with a, with a live disc as well, or a VHS. I haven't actually looked at the, at the track list, nor have I listened to it, but um, I will check it out. I think this one can kind of be, if you're going to ignore one, or if you're going to go check out this era of Black Sabbath, this is not the one I would I would go to. All right, so we're moving on. We're moving on, and disregarding all the landmines. <laughs> um, if you get that reference, please contact me, and I'll send you a special prize. That's a guarantee. But yes, we're moving on. We're moving on to the Black Sabbath album, released in 1995. This, of course, was Forbidden, which has been mentioned by a couple of my guests already. And this was, if you don't count the Heaven and Hell album, released in 2009. This was the last Black Sabbath album, under name anyway, until 2013. So an 18-year gulf between Black Sabbath albums. Albums actually released under the name Black Sabbath. And by this time, the lineup was Tony Iommi on guitar, Tony Martin on vocals, Cozy Powell back on drums, Neil Murray back on bass, Geezer Butler got the fuck out of there after cross purposes, and Jeff Nichols on keyboards. One other thing to mention is that this was a somewhat controversial album at the time, certainly amongst Sabbath fans. And even to this day, Sabbath fans kind of disregard this album. And the controversy, I will allow philip to explain um probably because a was produced by ernie c of body count and because ice t has a quick vocal cameo it's probably the most hated sabbath album but interestingly enough i like it a lot i don't even i wouldn't even call it a rap verse you know he's talking he's not actually rapping he's just you know it's it's a quick vocal passage and it it kind of fits the song because tony martin does some weird vocal thing in that song anyways why not? It doesn't bother me, but I, I've always liked Ice T. I remember being uh, probably eleven or twelve, and my older cousin handing me an Ice T cassette, and I was like, "Ooh, should I be listening to this?" It was the original Gangster, and uh, I like I like rap. Um, I don't necessarily like all of the crossover between metal and rap that was happening in the '90s, but there was some really cool stuff, and I had an open mind. You've had to 
as a metalhead in those days because everybody was doing weird stuff, including Black Sabbath. Um, Tony Iommi kind of not disowns this album, but he says it was a really bad idea. Um, it was thrown together fast. Uh, I think it was recorded, recorded in only eight days. And um, he didn't really... I think they kind of pushed the production job onto someone who was hip and modern at the time. So, but I don't really think it sounds that bad. I think it sounds bad for people who want a big sound, but because it sounds kind of rough and grimy a little bit, it's definitely the production is, is, is a bit rougher around the edges, but I think it suits, suits the songs. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate, Again, you know what's what's with the with the talking? Like Martin is not singing. He's he's trying to rap. I don't know what is he doing. Um, and then yeah, exactly. There's this this actual rapping <laughs> going on in the middle of a, a Black Sabbath song. I mean, like yeah, no, I'm not a fan at all. Uh, I I yeah, I found it very hard to find uh, something that I, I really liked about this this record. I think it's a constant with with all the songs. I mean, get a grip, maybe it's slightly better. Yeah, slightly better. And you know, compared to the other songs in the album that it's in, it's probably yeah <laughs> one of the best. Uh, but again, you know, just in context. Uh, can't get close enough again you know really weird intro and shaking of the chains yeah weird spoken parts and um yeah i don't, I don't know what they were thinking i mean i know I've, I've read something about it i couldn't get too too deep into it with you know the fact that uh they thought that they needed something they needed to do something to 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 be up with the times, you know, like, oh, Aerosmith did this thing with Run DMC, you know, uh, it worked, you know, you know, these bands were starting to to mix genres and in order to to stay relevant, you know, they were trying to to work with artists that were being successful at the time when metal was was not one of the most popular genres. So um yeah, I think it was a very misguided attempt at doing that. And they should have just, you know, do their thing. Uh, Get a Grip is, I find that one has kind of a bit of a new metal riff. I don't really like that song so much. I think it's one of the weaker ones on the album. I do like the one that follows it a lot. Can't get close enough. Uh, maybe, I again, I Won't Cry For You is another maybe listenable song. Again, a slow ballad um uh yeah sick and tired probably i like sick and tired yeah kind of a bluesy guitar um rusty angels you know again i like the fast pace uh rusty angels i've read quite a few reviews where people uh point that one out as a favorite and i have to say it's one of my least favorite tracks on the album i i my my notes were uh a bit uh mediocre rocker a bit bon jovi-esque <laughs> they say you come from heaven but i know that's not the truth i don't think an angel could look anything like you um but i mean you you jumped over can't get close enough i do have two things i want to say about that one um it 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 starts uh quite ballady and moody um and i almost feel a bit of a seattle vocal vibe in there and i i think that one um that that is a all over the album a little bit which is fine because that's what was uh 
everywhere at the time. But once it hits that riff at about 140, that riff gets me every time. And it sounds like a bit of a shortened version of the Megalomania riff. Oh, man, I love that track. I really do. So, overall, is Forbidden a bit of a dud in the Black Sabbath catalogue? <laughs> it's uh, it's it's difficult to get through it. I mean, it's not not a good one. I don't. I even hate the cover art. The cover art. Yes. Do you like it? Really? I remember the album cover because the album cover is really cool. My my closing statement. Yeah, my closing statement. Tony Martin. Um, yeah. I mean. You know that Dio, the Dio era of Black Sabbath is definitely my my favorite, but uh, Tony Martin is a is a close second. I I think he he did great things with the band. Um, uh, at least three. Uh, I mean, he did five uh, albums with them, stayed with them for ten years. Second, you know, is the is the vocalist that has been the longest uh, after Ozzy and. Uh, I would just love to to see him recognized for for his contribution because it it, it was I think it was uh, essential to to the band. It helped the band get back on their feet at a time when when uh, they were uh, probably on the on the verge of of a complete breakdown and uh, and I think he deserves to get that kind of recognition and and hopefully see his. Uh, a reissue of his of these recordings so that you know they can can be accessed by by more fans uh, as you said probably this this era of black sabbath is not very well known um because it hasn't hasn't been given its its uh, fair um, uh, place and and i think it would only be be fair to to give him the recognition he deserves in in the history of of black sabbath um yeah, that's uh, that's what I would like to see. Um, I think he was pretty solid all the way through. I mean, Eternal Idol was a little different because he came in more or less as a substitute, but um, he really found his 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 place in 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 this era of Sabbath. And and I do enjoy I do enjoy his vocal performance. I mean, I think he's a great singer. Um, I think this you know this era of Sabbath should should get a little more respect and attention and i think he did a, he did a great job joe sigler from black sabbath.com reflects on seeing black sabbath during the tony martin era of the 1990s i did see the cross purposes tour twice once in philadelphia once in dallas and i saw the forbidden tour in philadelphia that too was a story because and it was as you know, IRS turned out to not be the best thing for Black Sabbath. It just didn't work in the end. They got like no promotion. In fact, if you've read any of my stories, the day that Forbidden went on sale, um, day one, the record store that I bought stuff from had ordered a single copy to sell. And, and I bought it. Um, but the tour was not supported very well. It, 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 was, it, it had problems. But when I saw them, they were at that time, I saw them, I saw the Dehumanizer tour at a, at a 5,000 seat venue there. And the uh, Headless Cross tour played in that same venue, which even though I didn't see it, um, the Cross Purposes tour was there as well. 
and the Forbidden Tour was going there too, five thousand seater, which is what Sabbath was was doing at that point. However, they were not selling the five thousand seater, so they moved the venue to a different place. Um, but then they couldn't sell that place. They moved the show a second time to a third venue, and the third venue um, was one of those places that local clubs play. And it held at most 1,000 people, and they didn't even sell that out. If you've ever read my, I wrote a 25th anniversary of Forbidden Story, which talks about all kinds of stuff. This venue I'm speaking of is in the article. I, it's, it's a Google Street View where they actually show you the inside of the venue. So you can go on my story and look at the inside of this venue and see how tiny it is. So yes, I saw, saw them with Tony Martin three times and the Cross Purposes tour was, was amazing because it had the best set list of any Sabbath tour I've ever seen because Tony Martin doesn't have a problem singing the other singer's material, both, both from him being able to sing it or from him having an ego about it. Um, so that was an awesome set list. In fact, at the beginning of the tour, they actually had the stones and tried to drop Iron Man. They had to bring it back, but they, they actually tried to play a Black Sabbath show without Iron Man. The idea of playing a Black Sabbath show without the song Iron Man feels like the perfect way to end this episode of Ark Sabbath, as next time we will be talking about the reunion with Ozzy Osbourne, who, let's face it, was the Iron Man in Black Sabbath. We'll also be talking about the legalities of the name, the reunion with Ozzy, how Sharon Osbourne was involved, the change of name to Heaven and Hell, the Devil You Know album that was released under the banner Heaven and Hell, and also the Black Sabbath album 13. And, of course, we'll finish off with the tour, The End. And is it the end of Black Sabbath? Join me next time for Ark Sabbath episode 10. In a complex catacomb of your own inadequacies and pitiful weaknesses. Your soul secretes insecurity, so you live on the reflection side of the mirror. You're terrified of true power. 